Please be seated. Before I came to church tonight, I um, I went on uh, to the Las Vegas uh, uh, betting thing to find out what the over-under was on Pastor Tom coming to church tonight. <laughs> so for those of you who weren't here, hi Tom. Those of you who weren't here this morning, Pastor Tom, his last day is a pastor here. He's in, heading into retirement, uh, his choice, not mine. And uh, this last uh, Friday, and so uh, tonight, as I mentioned this morning, we uh, honor him with the highest honor we have here at Calvary Chapel, and that is uh, Costco cakes after service. And so um, we'll do that. And Tom, just remember this is, I mean, it's for you, but it's for us more than you. We, we respect you. We love you. We're so grateful. So thank you. I will leave one uh, thing in your hands. The, um, the chair, and I looked it up t- uh, online, uh, for the Hora dance at, uh, at the Jewish weddings. You can either do that or not do that um, as you see fit. I, I have a hunch of what direction you'll go in. But thank you, Tom, so much. Um, as I mentioned also this morning, uh, yesterday, uh, Pastor Joseph Perdome of, uh, with the Calvary Chapel in Fairfield, where, Joseph, would you just stand and allow us just to say hi to you as well? He hates it too, I tell you, it's just... <laughs> so, and then uh, Frank Ippolito from Calvary Chapel Vineland, and he's with me here, and um, we go way, way back and really got going, all of us with the Lord, in, uh, uh, at Calvary Chapel in Napa. And uh, so together we've known each other for 45 years and we were part of uh, Chaplain Lee Shaw's. Uh, he was a pastor, also uh, became a chaplain in Napa. And uh, to be a part of his memorial service, he went home to be with the Lord uh, 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 late last year. And uh, so to have him out from Vineland and Joseph and I thought what a wonderful thing. Uh, Frank was instrumental in the founding of Calvary Chapel there in Fairfield and also instrumental in the founding of uh, this church, Calvary Chapel Modesto. Uh, Frank, I think he started to come down here from Napa driving because he had family here uh, in the area and he came for a period of time and uh, then the Lord moved him and his family down to Southern California and they kind of plugged me into his, uh, into his place of, of driving down. We did that for about a year and a half before uh, we, we moved here. And prior to that, uh, we didn't even know that a place called uh, Modesto existed. And uh, not because we are modest or modesto, but simply because at that age and time in life for us, for Karen and I, and uh, one child and another on the way, and actually two children by that time, you're just so busy hustling to keep ahead of the next thing, you're not thinking about the general state of uh, of California and all of the cities in it. And so both Karen and I are deeply grateful for Frank's coming here all of those years ago and, um, and God using that to bring us to this, uh, this city to be able to serve for uh, so many years. Um, Frank was 
the, uh, all of us with Joseph and we uh, uh, served, I think Frank was already an elder by the time Joseph and I started to serve as deacons and then as elders together in Napa. And uh, you've heard me talk about Frank uh, during various passages that we talk about in the Bible, certainly related to Barnabas. And uh, he just, Frank just had one of those um, gifts in which uh, he had a way of just encouraging people into their next step in ministry. And a great encourager, he's launched many, many people out into Christian service, whether in a local church or beyond. He certainly did that with me uh, to become an usher to begin with at Calvary Napa. And then there was a point I was attending the three. I'm just going to tell stories about myself all night here tonight. So, But... Um, uh, attending the three morning services uh, that were there in Napa, then the evening service, the midweek service. And, and Frank came up and said, have you ever thought about um, heading up a, 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 Bible, a home Bible fellowship? And I hadn't thought about that and nudged us in a little bit in that direction and headed into that direction. And so um, uh, he just had a gift for that. And of course, Frank's not only done it in the United States and in California, doing it in Vineland, and he served for many years as a missionary also uh, in, in Europe. And so, uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful history, and uh, it's wonderful to have him back uh, after all of these, uh, these years. Loved by so many, loved certainly by Karen and I. And so, Frank, we, kept, we held down the fort for 40 years. It's good to have you back. Uh, glad we didn't hold our breath. Would you give a warm welcome, please, to Pastor Frank? Thank you. At first, I thought you were going to say when, when I've mentioned, wow, this thing's tall. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that, you know, uh, you've heard me talk about Pastor Frank every time I teach on Balaam and his donkey. <laughs> Happy to say I taught Damien everything he knows. Of course, I'm just kidding. Damien is a dear friend along with Joseph, Pastor Joseph and Lee, and we, we feel the loss, actually, uh, the three of us of Pastor Lee. And, and, but what we saw, what I saw anyway, and I'm sure they would agree, what we saw when we were at the memorial yesterday, is how many people Pastor Lee Shaw affected in his community. One man, one man affected, affected thousands of people in the community of Napa, California, and that whole region and beyond. And so um, if, if you feel like you're just a little person and you don't have much to offer, I assure you that's not the way God sees things. So please do uh, consider yourself available for the Lord. And once, he's when he, once he knows you're available, he doesn't mind using you. And no matter whether you're Balaam or his donkey, he won't mind using you. So it's good to be here. I am in, in, from Vineland, uh, New Jersey. It's in the south. We're nowhere near the ugly part. We are in the country. Uh, and uh, we're actually in the country. But we're close enough to Philadelphia, so we're in the Philadelphia of uh, the shadow of Philadelphia, rather than the shadow of New York. And uh, so New York is about two and a half, three hours north of us, 
and uh, Philly is 45 minutes. So we're a suburb of Philly. We do not root for the New York Giants. We root for the Philadelphia Phillies. And unfortunately, you people don't have a team in your state to root for, right? <laughs> All right. I was a big 49er fan when I was here, and I was rooting for them in, in the, in the uh, Super Bowl. So sorry that that skunk of a quarterback came back in the last seconds. And overtime. Uh, anyway, enough of that. That's old news. I want to talk about some older news from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And if you wouldn't mind, would you mind turning in your Bibles to that chapter and let me read the verse aloud to you? One verse. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel. Lord, as we pause for a moment to ask you to join us here tonight, we ask that we would be the recipients of your presence and, and benefit from it. Of course, any, anywhere where you are, we're going to benefit from it. And so I thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege to be together, to worship you. What beautiful worship. What the songs, the lyrics brought us into your presence. And, and, and now we're going to sort of be in the afterglow of the word. We're able to, to hear the, the, the things of Scripture that, that really is uh, what the, the Spirit of God uses to change us and to make us more into your image. What a privilege to be a child of God. What a privilege it is to walk with you and to be with you. And one day we're going to live with you in eternity forever and we'll see you face to face. And until that time, Lord, may we do everything we can. May it be our aim, as the Apostle Paul said, that to bring glory to you, to be pleasing to you in every way. So bless this time we have in your word. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. I, I, if we really want to understand our world today, then it's good to have a, a basic understanding of the third chapter of Genesis. You may not realize it, but Understanding the third chapter of Genesis it will teach us or, or give us at least some clarity as to why the world is in the state that it, is in, that it is today. Why there are wars, why there is crime, why there is racism, why there is death, disease, civil disorder, gender confusion, and every other thing that is, that is going wrong in our world today. And if you understand that, then, and then, then you, you won't be so frustrated about it. I mean, it doesn't make us happy, sure, but... You, at least we understand. There are two ways for us to interpret uh, current events or any events in our world. One is through a spiritual lens or a spiritual worldview, if you want to call it that. And the other is, of course, through a secular worldview, a worldview that doesn't take into account the presence of God, the hand of God, the work of God, the divine. Of course, we Christians believe that the Bible presents the correct view, the correct way of interpreting events and things that happen around us, where, while all other worldviews, as I said, is, are lacking, since they omit the Bible's perspective, the Bible's influence, God's influence. And so Genesis 3 puts everything in its proper place. And I believe it is the key to understanding our past, our present, and our future. And without this chapter, uh, we probably wouldn't have a gospel. 
and there would actually not, may not even have been a need for a gospel. And Genesis chapter three tells us why we need a gospel, why we have to be saved and what we must be saved from. Without understanding Genesis chapter three, I don't think we could understand our savior and the importance of his work and what he came to do on this earth. And Genesis chapter three is where man was condemned. Man was driven out of paradise, a flaming sword placed in front of the entrance, making it impossible for man to return to paradise. It's when and where uh, we began to suffer in life and sweat in everything that we do on earth. I don't know if you know this, but it, life on earth isn't always easy. I'm sure you do know that. But uh, these are things that have affected us ever since Genesis chapter three, and that even uh, apart from the gospel, we would have nothing at all to look forward to except for death in the grave. And yet, with all of that hidden within this chapter is the Bible's very first declaration of the gospel message in verse 15, the one I just read to you. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And theologians have called this the protevangelium, or uh, the first gospel, the first mention of the gospel, the first, the first uh, promise of a gospel, of good news. Because at this moment, of course, in, in the history of the world, in the Garden of Eden, standing before God, God is, is scolding uh, uh, the, uh, the two uh, created beings, Adam and Eve, and he's scolding uh, 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 the devil himself, the serpent. And uh, so uh, everything has gone awry. Everything is, has gone bad as far as from our perspective. And yet God has given them the hope of change, of something wonderful that was coming here in verse 15. So what does Genesis 3 mean to us today? Well, first of all, it means, like it or not, that the devil is now in control of our world. Genesis chapter 2, you'll remember, is where God made Adam the ruler over the earth. It tells us that in verse 15 of Genesis chapter two, that the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it, made him the caretaker of God's creation. And that's when we see God brought the animals before Adam and Adam was privileged to be able to, to name all of the animals. When Adam ate that forbidden fruit, he without realizing it, I'm sure, transferred rulership of the planet over to the devil, to Lucifer. So now the entire world is under the devil's control, the devil's dominion, which is why things are as bad as they are. I, I think it's frustrating sometimes when you hear people look to God and say, why does he do this? Well, it, it's sort of out of his hands to some degree at this point. And that's basically the biblical worldview of today, of our world. And there are other verses to confirm this claim. In 1 John chapter five, fantastic verse, one that you really need to know. If you understood uh, 1 John chapter five and verse 19, I'll tell you it would, it would take a lot of stress off your plate because you realize what John says is absolutely true. He said, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. 
This is the apostle John, after having served with Jesus for all those, all those years, walked with him even longer. And here he's saying, this is what we know, that we're the children of God, but there are those who are under the sway of the wicked one. The devil, of course, is what he's talking about. And I think that's about as clear as it could possibly get. But Jesus went on to actually explain that concept a little further in Luke chapter 11. And in verse 21, when he said, uh, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Now this, if you're willing to receive it this way, is Jesus's view of the world and mankind under Satan's control in this world. This is exactly what John said. We're the children of God and the whole world is under the control, the influence of the evil one. And that's Jesus's view. He sees human beings on this planet as being prisoners in a palace and being guarded by this massive strongman who we know to be Satan. And he sees it as if people are being kept behind the walls of the devil's palace or fortress, if you will. And this fortress has gigantic walls so that no one is able to escape. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't possibly escape. And we're told in that passage of, of, of uh, uh, Luke uh, 11 that uh, the strong man, he said, was fully armed. And this strong man guards his palace. He's, he's, it's the world. He's talking about the world. And that people are prisoners in this, in this prison. But that the strong man, referred to here again as Satan, powerful enough to prevent anyone from escaping his domain. The inside of his fortress, he was careful to leave enough space. He doesn't use chains to imprison people per se. And the result of that is that the prisoners roam around within the walls of his fortress believing that they are absolutely free. That's how he has deceived the people be behind the walls of that, of that fortress. And so long as they stay behind the realms, that, that within that realm or behind the limits of the palace walls, then no trouble is going to happen more or less. Prisoners believe they're free, not even realizing that they're trapped in Satan's fortress under his complete control, under his sway. And Jesus, as it says there, Satan is fully armed, guards his palace, and that his possessions are safe. His possessions, people. He's talking about people. The people that, that, that the devil is un, uh, on, uh, in control of. He controls them. And when he says the fact that they are safe, he means that these prisoners can't escape. These are his possessions. They're powerless to rescue themselves. They can't save themselves. It's impossible. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul said that Satan is the God of this world. In Ephesians 2, Paul called Satan the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And if you're not a Christian today, 
He's talking about you. He, he's letting you know that you are a prisoner, whether you realize it or not, you're trapped behind the walls of Satan's fortress and you're under his authority. And society can't help you. Psychology can't help you. Science can't help you. Medicine can't help you. Money can't help you. Government can't help you. Greenpeace can't help you. The United Nations can't help you. Religion can't help you. Nothing can help you. At least they can't help us in the way that we think they can or the way that we want them to or the way that we need to be. Those things might make you happier. They might scratch an itch that you have in a particular view or opinion, but until Jesus sets you free, you're caught, trapped behind the devil's walls. And this is a truth, as I said, is made clear throughout the Bible as well. The psalmist in Psalm 72 said he feels pity for the weak and the needy, he will rescue them. From what? What are we gonna be rescued from? In Luke chapter four, verse 18, when Jesus began his public ministry, he opened the scriptures and to Isaiah and announced his mission in a Nazarene synagogue, the town of Nazareth. If you've ever been to Israel, maybe you visited that little, it's a chapel now, but it's built on top of the, the, the remains of this very synagogue in the city of Nazareth. Fantastic little place. And uh, I remember the first time I was there and our, our beautiful Christian Nazarene tour guide, he sat us down. I didn't know why we're there the first time I was there. And he, he opened the scripture and, and he read from Luke chapter four. And the part where, where Jesus says, this day the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then the tour guide said, Jesus spoke those words here in this place. You know, you begin to get, you get goosebumps at that time and you realize, oh boy, what a wonderful place to be in the spot where Jesus launched his mission, his ministry. Well, anyway, the passage in Luke chapter four, verse 18 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, I'm reading from a more modern translation, and to set the oppressed free. Now in the Gospel of John, Jesus also said, when the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. That's the idea, free, from what? And again, that question, from what? I think this answers the story, uh, the question, I mean, in that, that, that we, we're free from the, the devil's rule over our lives. We're free from a lot of things, but I'm in particular in this context of, of this sermon, I'm talking about the, the, the power that Satan has due to Genesis chapter three. Jesus appointed Paul to that same deliverance ministry, and I mean that in a biblical sense. In Acts chapter 26, when, Jesus, uh, when Paul was talking about when Jesus saved him and he's telling the story and he said, this is what the Lord said to me, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And if, you, if you're a Christian today, that's you. You're not under the power of Satan anymore. Oh, he may have us buffaloed and getting us to think that we have to do whatever he says. No, that's not true. He's not our boss anymore. 
We don't answer to him. We don't listen to him. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul said in verse 4, Jesus gave his life for our sins in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. The same was true when he wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 13. He rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. You know what Paul called that in Romans? In Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. You've been taken out of the, the devil's palace and you are now put in the kingdom of the sun where you live. That's who you are. You are in Christ. If you're a believer, if you're truly a believer, I don't mean being in Christ does not mean being in church. There is a difference. In Christ means this has happened to you. You've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and taken and transported and you are now positioned and live in the kingdom of Jesus. So we can see through these verses that I've given to you that, that the biblical evidence for the devil's concept or, or practice of capture and imprisonment, capture and imprisonment. But Jesus promised rescue and deliverance and release to all who believe in him. And if you're uh, uh, able to understand it, then you know that this is the entire storyline which occupies the bulk of the entire Bible. And you may not know this, but there are actually two histories that run parallel to, to each other within the scriptures. There is the secular history. There is a secular history or secular story that's being told in scripture, but also this is the same stuff that we learned in high school when we would read it in our textbooks or on the internet today, we can do that. And that history is typically told from, from the perspective of man. This is our history. This is our uh, successes. These are our failures. These are the things we did. And it's primarily interested in tracing the story of man, 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 man. And it tells of world events, sporting events, statistics. What are statistics? Secular history. It, it talks about art or, or, or uh, the rise and fall of nations and the great achievements of mankind throughout time. Yes, it's wonderful history. Christians are certainly interested in that kind of history. How many of you watch History Channel? I have it, we we'll watch it, I like it, learn different things so long as they don't twist it. But you know, you, you've got the history and you can see and you say, wow, that was amazing. They thought of that back then? You know, you think of the Romans and, the, and, and their, their aqueducts that ran water into homes back then and plumbing in the streets. You go to Pompeii in Rome, uh, near Rome and, and the plumbing's still there. I mean, we, I, my plumbing in my house doesn't last that long. The roads in Pompeii buried under ash and lava for so, so long, and they're still there. In New Jersey, we have, we have fishing, no fishing signs in our potholes and our roads. <laughs> we're interested in that story, but mostly, mostly we're interested in the secular history, mostly as it relates to another type of history. Because there is another type of history. It's a shadow, if you will, a shadow history, a mystery history. It's pretty cool, right? Mystery history. Because it tells a spiritual story. Secular history 
runs in cycles, as we know. It goes round and round. Often it will repeat itself because, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. That's human history. Nothing new under the sun. And I think we're currently in a new cycle of history because we've kind of gone backwards. A lot of chaos, things we watch on TV. We see, we get the sense that the world is literally erupting into flames in many parts of our world and in different ways. And we're shocked. We're frustrated. We're angered. We see the evil, the violence, the crazy confusion that's happening all around. Government failing and frailing, flailing, trying to trying to make sense of, 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 of governing people, and they're just una, unable to do it. But such things aren't really new at all. They, they just confirm to us that history repeats itself. It's the, the history of man. They rise to a certain point, and then they fail, and they fall. Uh, 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 empires rise to a certain point, and then they fall. It's a repeat of history. God help us that America hasn't reached its peak, and we're going the other direction now. God help us. And I said, there's another history. It tells a spiritual story. And that spiritual story, the spiritual history, if you want to call it that, runs side by side with the secular story. But, of course, it's invisible. It's, on occasion, it manages to intersect with secular history now and then. Um, but it, it, this spiritual history is telling a totally different story, separate altogether from the human history that we're able to see with our eyes. Nations and events are mentioned in the Bible, but I think it's, they're mentioned only to serve as markers. And that, that's, that helps us to know where we are in this spiritual timeline, this spiritual history timeline. And the spiritual history, as I'm calling it, fulfills a prophetic purpose, more specifically, the prophetic purpose of Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And, and, and we have to understand as we see this spiritual history that it's going to happen just as it was prophesied and promised. Nothing can possibly hinder Genesis 3 from 15 from being fulfilled, and we know it's basically been fulfilled in that we have salvation in our world through Jesus Christ. But it goes beyond that. And as you read your Bible, you'll see what I'm talking about when I talk about this, this, this type of Genesis 3.15 fulfillment. And you see the history between the two seeds that is mentioned there in that verse. And the two, the, the, the two seeds uh, began to battle as early as Genesis chapter 4, the very next chapter. Abel didn't hate Cain. Cain hated Abel. And that's how the battle between good and evil seemed to have, have manifested itself onto our world. And the two seeds were there. They were evident. One good, one evil. Cain was the evil seed. Abel was the good seed. Think about Noah with his family of eight righteous souls, eight against the entire known world at that time. And those eight souls were spared, but the rest of the world was destroyed by floodwaters. God revealed his, his plan of salvation to Noah, and they went to work to build an ark. They acted fully upon the revelation of God, but, but he built this ark while witnessing to the souls around him to let them know that judgment was coming, trouble was coming, you need to get right, you need to come back to God. But they laughed at him, they mocked at him. 
And they, they thought he was crazy, I'm sure. And for years, he worked at building that ark while trying to persuade sinners to repent, but they just mocked even more. The conflict was there. The seed of the woman mocking, I'm sorry, the seed of the woman and in, 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 in the righteous uh, souls of Noah's family and the seed of the serpent mocking them. It was a battle. It was fighting against it. You think of Abraham called out of paganism to serve the true God. And from Abraham would come God's chosen people, the, the Jews, the nation of Israel, the, the ancestors of our Savior Jesus Christ, who himself, of course, was also a Jew. Now, if we read the secular story only, then you might get the impression that along the way, God lost control of the prophetic story. The history of the Jews is a sordid tale of failure and, and, and disobedience and punishment and, and conflict. And it certainly did look as if the seed of the woman would be destroyed by their own faith, faithlessness, unfaithfulness, and that the seed of the serpent would be victorious. But even in the worst of times for them, God sent messengers, prophets, prophets who would encourage them, encourage Israel, and declare the good news that God would send a deliverer. And he did send deliverers in the Old Testament times, but he always had this promise of a divine deliverer. Of course, we, we refer to him now, and so did the Jews, as the Messiah. We know him as Jesus. The Jews missed that point. But as the, the Jews stumbled throughout the centuries of their existence, the Messiah didn't come. But God sent more prophets to reassure them that the Messiah will come. Don't lose hope. But after Malachi wrote that last book of our Old Testament, there were no more prophets. And God's voice went silent for about 400 years. What happened? Had God deserted Israel? Did he give up on his people? These people will never get it. I'm not going to live with them. I'm not going to deal with them. I'll not strive with them forever, as, as we heard from the story of the flood. Did the evil seed triumph over the seed of the woman? It appeared to be so. But believers in, in God have learned not to, not to trust what you see with your eyes. It's not always what you see. It's, you know, we have that saying, seeing is believing. But in the Christian life, believing is seeing. You see when you, when you believe what God has told you and promised you. In Galatians 4 Paul said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. And there is, there is the secular history now, combined with the spiritual history. They're running side by side. Everything looks so dark. Everything looks so bleak. Nothing but misery on the earth. The planet is horrible. It's all so bad. But when the, the fullness of time had come, at just the right moment, God turned to his son and said, Jesus, let's launch this plan. What do you say? And off he went into the world, born to a woman, and redeemed, born under the law, meaning he, he was born a Jew. He had, to, he had to obey the laws of, the, of, the, of the, the Old Testament, and he did so perfectly, becoming our perfect sacrifice in order to redeem those who were born under the law. And that is the secular history. And God's son was born in secular history. 
It's marked. It's, it's, it's evident. There's evidence of it. There's, there's the history of it. God's son was born into this world at a specific time, at just the right time, just as it was predicted, and he was born of the seed of the woman, not of a man, which speaks to us about his virgin birth, prophesied also by Isaiah. The seed of the woman had come. He'd arrived on the planet, not in some mystical place. No, it was right there, flesh and blood. We saw him. They handled him, John said. They, they, they touched him. They witnessed him in the first chapter of 1 John. But that only intensified the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. As we know from the New Testament, as the New Testament opens and the birth of the king of kings had, had, had happened, we read how King Herod, the evil seed of the serpent, tried very hard to kill Jesus when he was still just a toddler. Was it the man, Herod, who was behind that? Or, or was the... The serpent himself behind that design, that crazy idea. What would, have, what would have entered the mind of King Herod to say, you know, I got a great idea. Let's just kill all the kids under two years old. That doesn't come from normal human beings. That's a demonic word. That's a demonic uh, influence. Later on, Jesus would be tempted in the wilderness by the devil himself. All these other things, you know, I can't use proxies. I'm going in myself. And he went in and began to tempt Jesus himself. Then that didn't work. And so, well, we're going to bring the religious community after them. And up come the, the Pharisees and the scribes, moved by their own pride and jealousy, evil in their hearts. They conspired together with their own enemies, the Romans in order to have Jesus killed. And they, they, it succeeded, it seemed. They crucified him. But before that, of course, we have Judas, who was, um, who was among the 12. He was there with Jesus. Literally was possessed by the devil, and the scripture tells us that. And Judas was moved against Jesus, moved himself against Jesus in a, in a satanic attempt to foil the plan of God. The plan of God from Genesis 3.15. Even the crowds got in on it. The crowds at his trial, crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas, that murderer. Give us Barabbas. And you know, it seems that exchange is happening today. We're seeing something similar. We don't want common sense. We want craziness. Give us crazy. We want crazy. We don't want right and wrong. We, we, we just want to do what we want. They, they've, they've cast God to the side to go the, the, the route of craziness. And at that time, before, just before the crucifixion, it seemed all the, the powers of hell, all the evil powers of the world conspired together in order to defeat the seed of the woman once and for all and to prevent Genesis 3.15 from being fulfilled. And suddenly, suddenly, <laughs> like this can't, be, this can't be, it's not possible. Jesus died. Satan won. He finally got the advantage in his battle against the seed of the woman all the way back from the Garden of Eden, all the way back that promise was made. And it wasn't just about defeating Jesus. It was about defeating that promise of God. And Satan thought, oh, yes. But of course, we know how the story ends. So don't get too disappointed. We, we know that we've read the whole book. 
But Paul put it this way so perfectly in Colossians 2. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. I'll embarrass you in public by what I'm going to do on the cross. And that's exactly what happened. And he triumphed over them through the cross, Paul said. Oh, yeah, Satan had his 15 minutes of fame. He did his victory lap, I'm sure. And so did the Pharisees and the scribes. I imagine they then stuck their chests out and says, there, now, there you go. You, you claim to be God in front of us. Now what do you say? Now what do you say? And they too had their 15 minutes of fame. But as we know, it didn't last long because in just a couple of days, Jesus punched a hole in the, the gates of hell and says, I'm free. And anyone who believes in me is free too. And he defeated all the power of Satan and every evil plan that he, he tried to work. He destroyed death in the process as well. And this is the story of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, especially the last part. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the history of our salvation. That's what it's talking about. That's how we are redeemed. Yes, Satan bruised Jesus' heel, and that Satan seemed to have victory. He killed Jesus, but it only bruised him because Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus, it says, you shall, put your, you shall bruise his heel. That you're going to bruise the, the, the Lord's heel because he's going to stick his heel on Satan's head. And that's, that's not something to be laughed at. I don't know if you remember when the Gulf War started and they kept putting shoes on the, the head of Saddam Hussein's statue. It was like an ancient thinking. You know, you put your head on your enemy as if to say, I won. Submit. I won. And that's what Jesus does at the cross or at the resurrection. He put his foot on Satan's head and he's crushing his, crushing his head and conquering death and, and, and hell in the process because Jesus was in full control all along. And I want you to really make sure you get the, the, the full, full impact of that. It's meant to show Satan's humiliating defeat and full surrender. Because in the story of, 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 uh, that I mentioned about the strong man's palace, Satan is the strong man. But Jesus is the stronger man. And he's powerful enough to conquer the devil in Satan's palace and tear down the walls. And Jesus is the only one, of course, who is worthy to do that. He's the only one who could have done that. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 said in verse 14 that through death, he, Jesus, destroyed the one who has power of death, namely the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's, that's the palace walls. He delivered us. He crushed his head. He won the battle. He destroyed his authority. And one day, that same Satan and all who follow him, all who belong to him, all who belong in, who, who, who die behind the walls of his palace will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. And the only escape, the only single only escape, there is no other name under heaven whereby anyone can be saved from that except through Jesus Christ. Our world is a mess. And our Christian worldview is why we preach the gospel. Because that is the only way that people will be rescued out of the strong man's palace. And the, the gospel declares that Jesus has broken into Satan's palace and anyone who believes in him 
shall be saved. I think that it's safe to say that each of us has this seed, either one or the other, seed of the devil, seed of the woman. And it's up to each of us to determine which seed is in us. More specifically, and better yet said, which seed possesses you? Is it the seed of the woman? I sure hope so, because that seed is a reference to Jesus the Messiah. And, and you are in Christ. If you have the seed of the woman, you are in Christ. You're born again. You have, a, you have nothing but eternity in, in the, the presence of God to look forward to, whereas if you are of the seed of the devil, then, then you have nothing to look forward to at all except, except an eternity without God. See, everyone lives forever. What, what the difference is your address. <laughs> Where are you gonna live? Either with God in heaven or with the devil. I am so glad that the gospel changed my life. And I don't wanna do anything else but use the gospel to see that other people's lives are changed as well. Lord, as we bow our hearts to you tonight, I'm so grateful to you that you saved me. I'm thankful to you that you took me out of the kingdom of darkness and you put me into the kingdom of your dear son. And I'm so glad that you, you have given me your word to help me to understand what's happening in our world. And we see that our world is suffering and struggling. Our governments are suffering and struggling. Innocent people seem to be suffering and struggling everywhere. And our prayer is come quickly, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, let our prayer also be to help us be effective soul winners, to go out and, and, and let people know that there is a better way than what we've tried already. So help us, Lord, to, to be your light, to shine your light in this, in this place that used to be so beautiful. And we know that one day you're going to bring it back to that. But for now, we're, we're suffering as, as humanity. But those of us who are in Christ, we're walking in your light under the anointing and power of your Holy Spirit. What a beautiful place to be. But I do pray for any who might be here who's still behind the palace walls. They don't know it, they think they're free. They boast about their freedom. They don't realize they're not free at all. They are really under the devil's control and he has blinded them to the truth that they're not free. And I pray that you speak to them today and let them find the way into Christ through faith, through belief, through confession of sin, and through living a life in the presence of God and his spirit. Lord, I pray that they would see that. And if you're here today and you happen to be someone and you, so you just heard this for the first time and you're thinking, holy smokes, I'm living behind the palace walls. I'm, 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 I'm taken in by the devil, I, 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 and you just, the light just came on, and you just realized it. You need to give your heart to the Lord. Today's the day of your salvation. Take it, take that opportunity. And in your heart, say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. Please come into my life and, and see to it that my name is written in your book of life. I wanna be a brand new creation. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.